You're listening to the Crowdfunding Nerds Podcast, a podcast that will help you succeed before, during, and after your crowdfunding event. And now, here is your host, Andrew Lowen. Welcome to Crowdfunding Nerds, everybody. I have another awesome episode for you. I am here, as always, with Sexy Irish Sean, who is looking dapper in his blue long sleeve t-shirt, and Rick, who is looking dapper in his company specific t-shirt. On this episode, we're actually going to talk about the games that we do not want to market. We aren't going to get super specific as far as the actual game's name, but there are several reasons that we might turn a project down, and some of them might surprise you, honestly. But we're just going to give you a look behind the curtain, and I hope uh, nobody uses this information to sue us later. So here we go. (laughs) But as a marketing company, I mean, we're not... We, we want to make sure that you are successful. We're not going to accept anybody's money. It's like, oh, money, sure, we'll take it. Oh, sorry, your game did bad. But thanks for the money. We're going to be honest with you, and we're going to let you know what works and what doesn't. And if we feel that we're not a great fit with you, we, we may not market with you. It's not because we just want to take everyone's money. It's because, you know, we want to make sure you're successful and we'll help you also. We'll, we'll let you know, you know, things to, to change or fix before we, we do additional work with you. Um, but it's just the point that um, we want you to succeed and we don't want to. I mean, we feel guilty if we charge someone and we make them. Feel. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> so, yeah, know. so you know, the idea is that there are really three points of focus that, you know, uh, for this episode. Number one, all, all relating to reasons we wouldn't take a project and. The first one is the game itself. The second one are the people behind the game. And the third one is actually the company. And I'll start in reverse order because it feels like the company is probably the simplest one. And at the same time for us, it, it can be the most complex, which is probably the reason that uh, that I listed company and want to talk about it first. So uh, small companies with one or two or, or a dozen games or a handful of games, sorry, they tend to be a lot easier to onboard. When you have a company that has a bunch of intellectual properties that, you know, a bunch of established games, a really uh, large footprint in the industry, that tends to be something that is a much higher risk for us as a company to take on. The, The challenge with that is oftentimes they have more weight to throw around. So we tend to have a lot of work in front of us and you know, we just need to make sure that we're compensated properly for all of the time that we are about to dunk into the work required. Really what it comes down to in a, in a situation with a large company is bandwidth. Do we have the bandwidth to serve this client at uh, 100% capacity? And if we don't, then we would be fools to take them on, even though it represents oftentimes thousands of dollars a month into our business, it could potentially cause our business to really get inefficient in the area that we are very, very good. So while we do have a handful of what I call flagship accounts, we take them with care. So if you are listening to this and you have a, one of those companies that have a couple of evergreen products that do exceedingly well and you want to reach out, we'll absolutely do our due diligence, but we need to make sure that we can handle the volume of ads that you need every month, of properties that you launch on Kickstarter every year, of products that you launch on your web store every month, and that sort of thing. What do you think about that, Sean? Yeah, you know, we've got one client and they've got quite a lot of 
different products and different games and that one account it really accounts for like about 10 other accounts <laughs> the amount of work that has to go into you know all the different ads and all the a b testing and a, a good portion of my morning is just on that that one account monitoring everything making sure everything's afloat and then it, it feels like the same amount of time is spent on all the other accounts <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's it's interesting because scalability it's it, you know obviously there are many fewer large influential companies than there are small hopefuls looking to become a large influential company but we tend to just do exceedingly well as far as our ability to scale smaller accounts when you get to the larger account it really takes a lot of manpower and while we did just hire a new employee we we brought ryan on board ryan williams woo woo you know to expand our our capacity it is one of those things that we really need to have like a team of people that are ready to absorb this extra work. And um, I would say I would say that we could absolutely take on more of these large flagship accounts. They too many is a great way to grow yourself out of business, in my opinion. But another interesting thing is that uh, we can have two companies that have like the same like they're they look almost exactly the same products. But and they have the same budget, but one could be like twice as much work as the other. It's so interesting how sometimes you know, depending on like the uh, the never mind. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, <laughs> that's hilarious. <laughs> I actually where you were going with that was it's that ended up being hilarious, but it's true. And uh, one of the reasons that you can have two companies with a very similar workload allegedly. But then when you get into the actual project, one is twice as much work as the other is the people. So a second mm -hmm. reason that we would turn down a, a project relates to the person behind the project. The creator can help the case of why we would take a project on, or it can hurt the case of why we would take a project on. A lot of the time, you know, we would turn down a project. There are really kind of three different areas. Number one is creators that can't afford it. Um, we don't want to make somebody pay money that they don't have in order to get a result that they want. It's, you know, you need to be prepared, you know, is one element. But the one I'm kind of getting at is creators that would be a nightmare to work with or people that don't know what, what they're even getting themselves into. <laughs> what do you guys think about that? There's reason why, reasons why we have contracts and uh, there's always that fine print in the contracts. And, just, you know, usually those fine print items get added because of something that happened at work <laughs> every single one of them like there's you know everyone's wants a different involvement in the process you know we have like i have clients that like say just do whatever you gotta do and just let me know if anything goes wrong and then we have i have clients that like every day i get a call or an email asking how's this going how's that going and they just be super involved and the thing is is like when i when I respond to those that really actually pulls more time from me by having to sit down and either write an email or a call than to do the actual work and then it drags out and pushes everything behind. I hate to to be like the the evil the evil muppet in this uh in this uh podcast, but I mean like I mean if you're going to pay a company to do a a process that you can't do and they are knowledgeable and that's what they 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 specialize in, I would put my trust into that process and those people as opposed to treating them like a like a sub employee where you have to constantly micromanage them or or monitor them. No, it's true. But, you know, on, on the customer side, a lot of the time when they come in with those 
preconceived notions, that's actually not a turnoff to me to talk to somebody. A lot of the time when they're like, hey, I just want to make sure that you're doing the work. I just want to make sure that it's happening and this and that. It's because oftentimes they've been burned in the past by another company that they did put their trust into and were sadly disappointed. And in this industry, when in, in digital marketing, it's really easy for a person in our position to talk in a technical manner that makes us sound like an expert and just, oh, trust us. And then we kind of disappear, uh, but we're charging their credit card, of course, you know, but they're not exactly sure what's happening aside from the credit card being charged. And in the event, eventually something comes to a head where in a relationship like that, the client is like, all right, I'm either canceling service or you're telling me what it is that you've been doing. Right. And uh, we try never to get to that situation. We never want to get to that place. But oftentimes in other relationships uh, that that client has had in the past, it will end up that they just get left holding a bag that's empty and they didn't really get what they were promised. So for us, we, we do a couple of things to kind of help people with that. Number one is, oh, and, and this is, by the way, why I really love to have these types of conversations is that when um, somebody comes in with that that idea of like, hey, I need to watch you really closely, what I'll do is we'll respond with our processes that we put in place. One of the big ones is, number one, that our agreements are only monthly. So instead of tying you down to the contract uh, uh, term length of your, you know, let's say your your whole Kickstarter campaign or of your like one year, a lot of people will tie them down, tie them down to longer term contract lengths, which I don't think is in the best interest of the consumer to uh, or the client to, to sign one of those. We just do monthly and we say cancel anytime, no penalty. And people tend to like that. They're like, okay, well, if it does go poorly, then I can cancel without any penalty and, you know, that kind of thing. So as long as we are able to justify what it is that we did with your, your money, then you won't get your money back. Right. And you won't want to get your money back because hopefully you're getting those results. So, you know, when somebody starts like a wounded animal and they're like, I just need to make sure you're doing the work. That's totally okay. But after they sign the agreement and then they reveal that they're a wounded animal, it's like, oh, wow. But let's let's get down to the numbers since we're talking about clients. How many Kickstarter campaigns have we helped so far? I know when we first started our podcast, we let our listeners know we had about 22 camp successful campaigns um, raising, um, I think, over what was it? One point two. So we were, we were closing in on, I believe, two million dollars um, with that with that number. Two million dollars. Yeah. Uh, where are we at now? It's been a few, it's only been well, it seems like it's been a long time, but we started this podcast yeah. I think in December, so January, February, March. Yep. So it's been about four months. So what, what what's been going on at uh, Next Level Web with Gosh, all these Kickstarter campaigns? It's hard to say. <laughs> Maybe I should look into it. Well, so, some are complete, some are in the process, some were, are pending. They're all at different stages. Just as of today, we've we've had contact uh, with twenty five projects. So. So some of those, I mean, that's just us talking to people and sending them contracts and them not getting back to us or we're still pending on waiting for them to get back to us. Some of those are clients that we have you know, successfully launched. Some of those are people that are launching in the future. Since January, it's been at 25. <laughs> that's a lot. In fact, uh, what we'll do is uh, we'll, we'll post it on. We have a, we actually have a Kickstarter page on our on our, on our our website at nextlevelweb.com forward slash Kickstarter. And we actually show 
Uh, we just need to update it. And we'll hopefully we'll have an update by the time you guys listen to this. But we actually show our different clients and, and how much they've earned through our campaign process. And it's it's very eye-opening, uh, the amount of money uh, that people want to throw at Kickstarter. It I is mean, incredible. I, I estimate we've we've helped raise over $2.5 million on Kickstarter. I wouldn't say that we've directly raised that because, you know, Kickstarter doesn't let you know who who did it. So <laughs> this podcast has really helped quite a lot you know, with our, our visibility kind of in the industry, but also very importantly, just the, you know, clients referring others because it worked. Yeah. It would take a lot of work to work out. That's one reason I haven't done it because I know it's going to take probably like a day to sit down and go through all the Kickstarters, how much they made and then tally it all up. So it's like, ah, oh. <laughs> but yeah, it would, would be worth doing. I think at, at some, at the end of some quarter, we probably do need to do it and be like, Hey, we've helped raise this much money be really powerful on the landing page yeah to use an analogy that i that i frequently think about when we go to the topic of working on our own stuff the cobbler's kids have no shoes mm -hmm. right even though the cobbler's <laughs> his job is to make shoes he makes shoes for other people he makes money by making shoes for others but his own kids right he doesn't make money by doing that so the cobbler's kids tend to have the most beat up shoes <laughs> yeah we don't see, and he needs some tlc i think <laughs> yeah it does that's what makes us great we're so we're so busy focusing on you we don't focus <laughs> on we're ourselves. so selfless <laughs> so selfless so actually let's uh let's talk about that um in relation to the creator themselves it is actually a big deal to us that they would be prepared for this venture and we will turn people away because they don't know what they're getting themselves into and or you know of course if they can't afford it it's it's one of the things that i never hesitate to talk to somebody that can't afford us i love to talk to people that aren't ready for this or aren't ready or aren't quite able to afford it because you you do need to know what the road ahead looks like i mean if you hustle really hard and you scrape every penny that you have together to do your own work and you have a successful Kickstarter and you did it based on the advice you received from us, which is why we're doing this podcast. Maybe you will come back and use us when you can afford it. So it's never a deterrent to talking to someone that we will turn people away that don't know what they're getting into that are not prepared to use a quote from Illidan storm rage. You are not prepared, right? <laughs> that's weird. Cause as soon as you said that, that's what, <laughs> It was like playing in my head. You are not prepared. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Some people, they, they come to us and they don't really know what services we provide. Some people think that we take on all of the Kickstarter responsibilities. So like we literally just like on their behalf, run a Kickstarter for them, yeah. which would be an incredible amount of work. So I think that's one client that we would reject because they don't understand our services or the, the amount of work that has to go into it. Mm -hmm. I think that kind of lends itself to the business side of things, right? You need to be prepared to start a business and to put a lot mm. more time into that business than you're going to pull money out. You're really investing yourself into a business for the hope of a good return one day, but a lot of the time with a business, you are not going to even pull a profit for a few years. You're going to put a lot of time, effort, energy into it, and you can end up with nothing at the end of several years or with no value, right? And you have to be willing to make it all the way through that process of 
struggling and trying hard and reinvesting every penny you make into business and putting extra money that you, you know, from your full-time job into the, uh, to feed the machine until it can actually stand on its own. Yeah. And uh, like I've said in previous podcasts, the Kickstarter beast has, has changed. It's, it's evolved, you know, back when Kickstarter was, was new and fresh, all you had what needed was an idea. Like, here, here's my idea for something. And then, you know, people would back you. And now you literally have to have a full scale, visually appealing product that people like. It's got to be like pretty much manufacturer ready by the time you put it on Kickstarter, because otherwise people aren't going to buy it. They're going to be like, well, no, because there's all these other people that uh, that have a full ready to go product. And I'm going to back them because there's this ready mm-hmm. to go and I, I want it. Yeah. Now. So let's move into the topic of the games themselves, because a lot of the time when it comes down to Kickstarter, you know, we kind of end up, you know, believing in the creator. So if you make if you make us believe in you and you are passionate about your project, then you will sway us to work with you um, oftentimes. So it kind of comes down to your game after that. And honestly, if you are passionate enough about it, it is quite possible that you will sway us to take on a game that, you know, maybe even doesn't meet our standards, you know, and actually maybe we could talk a little aside about the, uh, so I feel guilty taking on a project that I don't think is going to be successful. And I've always had a really hard time with, uh, justifying taking on something that I don't think is going to be successful. But what's weird is in crowdfunding, it is what the creator believes is going to be successful. And so I, there's this weird balance uh, that we have to sit, you know, mm-hmm. let's say if I think something is not, you know, really up to par, but the creator can justify and is fully convinced in their own mind that this is going to be a success, I almost feel like I, I shouldn't be denying them our service if they believe in it, you know, because it's their product mm-hmm. and it's my job to, you know, they're, they're the boss in the end, right? I, I need to help them fulfill their vision that's like our 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 job what do you guys think about that we don't know the future you know when we don't have a crystal ball or something this will definitely be a failure this would definitely be a success yeah the same i think the same it's a double-edged sword because the same issue applies for success you know we could say yeah we're taking this on because it could be a success and it's not a success so it might surprise us mm-hmm. you have to tread carefully there who are we to say no to someone that this can't be a thing they there are certain you know you know warning signs that okay we just need some work. It's just just not prepared. But when it comes to us, you know, knowing exactly, I think it is down to the individual and how passionate they're about the project, and also their fan base. You might, we might be surprised to like, go, oh, wow, they actually have a really big fan base and really engaged community, and that's really surprising. Mm-hmm. Great, go for it. We're gonna help you. Yeah. So yeah, and every single one of these that where we reject a game, uh, these reasons, there are outliers that we you know like for example one of them is horrible art if your game has horrible art i you know which is so subjective as as is um then i don't think it's going to do very well on kickstarter but there have been games where i've been like that art's terrible and the creator launched a project with similar art and this is the sequel follow-up where the original one did you know 60 dollars and generated 1500 backers it's like well now I feel like the idiot for thinking that this wasn't going to work, right? And, um, you know, that mm-hmm. type of thing is always refreshing to see. I, I really enjoy being wrong in those cases um, because, you know, it just, uh, I love, I love you know, cheering on creators and 
saying, you know, if you believe in it, do it. What reasons are uh, common reasons we reject a game? The clearest one is if your game is already on Kickstarter. (laughs) (laughs) Some people come to us and they've launched their Kickstarter and they're 10 days in and they're like, you know, 20% funded. And they think, oh, what I need is a marketing agency. They go, they're gonna help me get this over over the cliff or over over the hill. And you know, frankly, it's it's too late by by that stage. And we we do not take projects that are live on Kickstarter because there's very little we can do at that point. Yeah. Our advice is always to reevaluate and relaunch. Right. That is sort of our. And you know, we always talk with those people. We answer their questions. We give them advice, but we never take those clients. We never take those projects on because we we're not going to take your money knowing that you you won't fund right. because if you if you're ten days in and you haven't funded already, throwing you know more money at ads or at us isn't going to do it. You yeah. might do it, but it would be at a great expense. Right. And yeah, and you won't be happy holding. Uh, you know having debt after your Kickstarter campaign's over or just being so far into the hole, right? Yeah. So, and, and to clarify, you know, we've taken projects that are live on Kickstarter, but they're always funded, you know, and they're like, oh, I didn't know I'd get funded. I'm, I need to, somebody to take this to the next level. So, you know, then they look for marketing company and they find us and, and we jump on. We have taken on lots of projects after launch, but every single one of them have been funded. And I think the reason is because if you direct people to that Kickstarter with ads, they're essentially cold leads. This is their first encounter with you, and it's much harder to get them to convert than if through pre-marketing, you have warmed them up to the idea to purchase from you. You've integrated them into your community, and they're essentially warmed up to the idea to make making that pledge. So your cost per acquisition is going to be much higher if you're just on like your live campaign thrusting as much traffic as you can to that Kickstarter page. Yep. When this happens, we often will recommend. So if you're, you know, 10 days in or seven days in and you've got 20% of your total funding required, it's, it's my view that you're probably not going to fund. And if you do fund, it might just be because you asked your mom to put a $10,000 check into or whatever, $10,000 credit card payment into Kickstarter for you. And that is not good either. Our recommendation is to plan on how you are going to relaunch this project. If you know, decide if you're going to relaunch and then put a plan together for how, where we often are able to help is if somebody is saying, you know, we give them the bad news that, Hey, I don't think this project is going to work. We would recommend not to put extra marketing dollars into this one. We would recommend to cancel and then plan on a relaunch. We can actually help with the the relaunch. And, you know, some clients have come to us where they've had to cancel and like two months of marketing and they've relaunched and they've had a day one fund, you know, and that was actually very recently true with Watchy Games and their Cryptid Cafe Kickstarter campaign. Um, that was a really cool one because they they went back to the drawing board, did a whole bunch of meaningful changes, and then instead of failing, they raised like way more than their goal. And I think their pledge manager, they actually might have raised more than they did on Kickstarter, which was very cool. So uh, number two, games that have not been blind play tested. Mm-hmm. If you have a game that looks tacky and like it is extremely fiddly, like it's not in its like it's not ready yet for Kickstarter. It's not even ready for the public eye. And then we find out that you don't even have a rule book that's been play tested. The crowd that serves Kickstarter for projects to back 
will sniff you out so fast and you are not going to make it. They tend to be very smart. You know, Kickstarter backers do their research and they don't just throw money into, into a project unless it looks good. So if your project looks like it hasn't really been tested very much, it's not very trustworthy to us, then the Kickstarter backer that's going to watch every single one of your videos is not going to believe either. Yeah, and things like rules can make or break your game so easily. I mean, for example, let's look at Uno. I mean, if they didn't have rules in a little Uno box, I mean, everyone knows how to play Uno now, but if you didn't, it's just a fancy, colorful like deck of cards. It literally, you could all, you well, a lot of people will buy a plain deck of cards and play something very similar because you know it's all about the you know yeah. the play and the rules. Um, and if you don't have a structure for your game, it's like going out to sea with a boat with no I don't paddle, know, food, boat with holes. No paddle, no motor. No captain. Come back weeks later with scurvy. <laughs> All because you forgot to blind play test your game. The key indicator here for me with games that have not been blind play tested is that you are not ready to receive critical feedback. You know, it's an indicator to me of a problem potentially actually with the designer that they, they can't handle the pressure of people telling them that their game is bad. So if you've tested your game with your friends and family and they're telling you they love it, they're your friends and family and they love you. So they're going to love whatever project is yours, right? Or they're not going to want to hurt your feelings. So, you know, a lot of the time that will leave a designer with unrealistic expectations. And when, you know, I always say, like, for example, myself with Deliverance, I have so much hope in the game that it's going to be awesome. I, I believe that it's going to be great. Um, I actually have done a ridiculous amount of blind play testing, but in the end, the market decides if the game is good or not right? If they want it or not. And a lot of the time, you know, it's, it's, it really hurts when the market doesn't like what it is that you have to offer. It's kind of a sad reality that, you know, no matter how padded your, your room or your walls are, the market just has this way of, you know, getting the truth will, will cut right through the, the little barriers you set up. And so when you fail to blind play test or do those things that are going to, um, you know, like any hygiene factors for your Kickstarter, you know, like a uh, solid gameplay video, solid rules that have been tested. That is just a recipe for disaster and failure. And we will reject your project for that. Now let's talk about the art. It's such an in the eye of the beholder type thing, but horrible art is horrible. You know, I, it's like, I don't know what it is, hmm. but I know what it is when I see it. There's some object, you know, objective standards to art. Not all of it is subjective. Color theory is, is, you know, if you just have good color harmony, you can, that, that's going to like improve the look of your art by like 70%. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing how much just they're using the right colors is going to impact it. And, you know, that's. That's something you can measure. It's, it's scalable. There's color calculators, so that's not that's not a problem. Uh, you know, a typeface. If you, there's just some typefaces that just don't use <laughs> you know, Comic Sans is an example. <laughs> but some typefaces aren't very clear. You know, they're just very messy and they're not, they're they're not good yep. on games or good on anything. And or you know, they're not good if if it, the text is super small. Yep. So th th there's those types of things. And then I think there's styles. You know, if you can't really mix styles. You can't have like a really cartoony style and then bring in like photographs. You know? <laughs> Mixing things like that is going to be it's going to be bad. I think the the biggest thing like for for what I see and is consistency. As long as I mean it needs to look you know decent, but it needs to be consistent. There was a game that I was reviewing once um, that was going to Kickstarter, 
And I was looking at the, the board and then I was looking at the box and then I was looking at the cards and I'm like, this doesn't make sense. Like the colors were different on each. They had different color palettes for everything. And then the style of the artwork was different and didn't match at all. And so I asked and they're like, oh, well, you know, I, I had three artists make this game. You know, one was a friend and, and one was one was a family member. And then I paid someone mm-hmm. to do the rest of the stuff. And it showed and you could tell it just it just didn't match up. And I let them know. I said, it needs to be consistent. Choose one to do the artwork, yep. but don't have multiple people do the artwork unless they're extremely good. Yeah. You look at a company like uh, Wizards of the Coast with Magic the Gathering. They have a lot of artists that do their the art for their various cards, but there's a lot of consistency and uniformity because they have rules. It's like they only go after artists that are, number one, able to replicate what it is that they're looking for. They have clear styles, right? I mean, you know, way beyond what a normal um, small business would be able to uh, put together. They have just a ton of experience in this area. They have requirements. So like, we need you to design like this. And that is something I find even with Deliverance, I was able to put together and say, hey, I need it to look like this, right? We use these colors for good guys. We use those colors for bad guys. These are our neutral colors and that sort of thing. And that really helped. So I have one artist that is the main guy doing all the angels, the demons and that sort of thing. But one, oftentimes one artist, when you have a, you know, like mine, a project that's quite large, I needed an art or maybe an artist that is very good at characters, but you know, not that great at like environment. I had one artist eventually do the, uh, you know, the angels and demons, like I said, another artist do the map tiles so that, you know, you've got this really interesting looking map. The same artist does all the same or does all the things in that category, you know, like all the map tiles, every single one of them was done by the same guy and all the angels were done by the same guy. That's, that's really important. And I think that there are certain things that you can look for that, you know, like styles of the artist, you know, the, the artist that actually paints, you know, right away versus the artist that sketches and then turns it into an ink and then colors in the lines, you know, like the comic book style. Like you're not going to get an artist that does that paints to do the ink comic book style. If that's not the way that they do their art anyway, Rick, you're right on with that because that's actually one of the big indicators that like you you went cheap. You tried to save money on your art and it just, you know, oftentimes it doesn't work out. It's really, it's also really easy to fall in love with the creation of your own project because it's your baby. It is so fun to see a project come to life that oftentimes you miss the uh, critical failures of, of, of an artist. It's like, wow, every time I see a piece of art, it's like, wow, that's amazing. And then, you know, a day later, it's like, oh, it's got these nine problems, you know, let's fix it. And you have to be willing and able to go through that in your art process. And yes, please don't use too many artists. It's an easy indicator that your game is not going to work. You know, one, one other thing on this topic, there are a couple of things that we look for, for us, they're very important. And in the art, if your game is, uh, so actually the art and the theme, number one, if your game is overly sexualized, I will not market it. I will say, no, thank you. I don't want to market Game of Thrones. Um, you know, if you got boobies out, if you're, if your women have like, you know, bikini armor and your men are all, you know, I don't know wh- whatever it is. It's very objectified. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I will not market your thing. Um, also, if your 
game is straight up like too sacrilegious for me. I won't market it. As long as good is treated as good and evil is treated as evil. What do you guys think? What about a make board games great again? (laughs) Yeah, too too political. One time we had this game that was a, a dictator game where you try to be the best dictator you can possibly be. And you had, you know, Trump right next to Mao, right next to Joseph Stalin. And I'm just like, you know, I don't want to touch this with a 10 foot pole. It's like the election year. <laughs> it's like, you know what? Have fun with this on your own. Yeah. I remember talking to someone and like, oh yeah, we created this game and it was about assassinating this like real world person. And like, yeah, we, we found out that with, you know, playtesting, people didn't respond well to that. So uh, we uh, we rebranded and just made it about like fictitious characters. Like, yeah, that, that was probably a good idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think people want to play a game with you like they're actually killing a real person. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. Yeah, I think that, you know, one thing, one other thing I'll add in regard to games that we would not take, or rather we would manage before we actually take it on. We would have conversations as games game uh really that that have unrealistic expectations people maybe this is kind of a blend between the people and the game but they believe this in this so much that they think it's going to make a million dollars and that's Hmm. the lowest amount they're willing to consider i mean there are people plenty of people that have reached out that have had this uh mindset is that their game is going to do a million dollars and wouldn't i be so lucky to market this game and you know, if, if they're not willing to, you know, we did this, uh, podcast a while back, it's like the four and a half possible outcomes of your Kickstarter campaign. And one of them is that you fail. One of them is that you barely succeed. And, you know, if you're not willing to consider those two things as possibilities, you know, it's, it's, um, yeah, it's not fun to consider what happens if you fail or what happens if you barely make it and the market didn't really like your game that much. It's not very fun to think about that, but mm. it's something that is really important. You know, the the low end of deliverance, I mean, in in my view, I'm like, dude, deliverance is going to make $200,000 at the low end. Uh, but that's not really realistic, honestly. You know, I'm 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 plan if I'm planning on my low end, the worst deliverance could possibly do is 2,000 backers or whatever 2,500 backers. Then that is kind of one of those clients that I that I would really have a hard time taking on because if the game does a thousand backers and I'm the marketing company on the hook for that. I'm going to, they're going to be upset, right? They're going to be mad at us. So it's a whole lot easier to manage expectations up front and not have somebody super upset because they had this unrealistic expectation, right? I mean, Rick, this happens all the time in SEO, doesn't it? People believe like, Hey, if I give you just a few hundred dollars, you'll magically make me number one and I'll be like the top company in the world. It doesn't quite happen that way. So yeah, unrealistic expectations. We actually invite unexpected expectations because then we get to talk to them and, and go over what like industry standards are and, you know, things that, you know, would and wouldn't work. In fact, we always, you know, like, especially like an SEO, we always let them know that, hey, this, you know, I'm going to be doing this work right here, but you may not see the results for three to six months. It's not going to be instant. You're not going to be number one. You're not going to be, you know, it takes time and work to get this all done. And uh, we guarantee the work. And then, you know, eventually the results will come, but they're not instant. It's not a get rich quick scheme. And then of course, you know, so when we have people with, unex, you know, with, with, with these uh, 
um, really high, high, high expectations or, or very low. Uh, it gives us a chance to to uh, to talk with them and and go over like what you know an average an average campaign would look like. Well, I find with Kickstarter as well as another area of unrealistic expectations is the amount of emails that people want to capture. You know, some people get they have like a number in their head they want to reach. Our goal is always to get the most email leads, but the most email leads that are qualified or who will be more likely to back. So we're not just trying to get lots of emails or hit some arbitrary number. I'll go already to get as many. So I'd rather have 500 people who are really engaged, uh, are going to back your project, are like really involved in your community than you know, 2,000 people and they're just not really engaged in what, what you're doing. So some people just say, I want some X, X amount of emails. And I think our, our, our sort of focus is always to encourage people to think of the engagement of their community rather than the, the number. So that's some expectations that we have to work with as well. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. And all, all of us, really, we are your marketing partner, the person that you're going to trust to sit on that seat in your in your company, right? And and fulfill those responsibilities. And what you don't want to do is you don't want to <laughs> make us not like working with you. You know, we're just you want us if we have extra time at the end of the month, you want us to be like, oh yeah, I want to all right, let's let's spend a little extra time on their account uh pro bono because they are awesome and we love them and we really want their project to succeed. That's what you want at the end of the day. Yeah, it um it, it's not our motivation that's you know that that's where where it's going because we 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 are motivated to do the work we do it's when it comes to seo it's google's motivation and guess what google doesn't have any it's got it's like it's like the slow it's like the slow giant you know it's just it's meandering and uh it's got to catch up with with you is what it is so i mean there's a lot of work we can do we can you know in we could do like like you know three months of work in one month but it'll probably still take just as long to get it, you know, to get it. Yep. Get and things are always results. changing as well, because um, I'm sure in SEO, your work will probably slightly change from month, month to month as you, you know, see things developing and different information coming in on what's working. Yeah. And it's, it's just like, you know, the, the evolution of Kickstarter. I mean, like I said, what Kickstarter was in the heydays was great. And now it's different. And now you have to adapt and change your marketing style to, to match it. I mean, you also want to do some due diligence because, for example, um, there was a SEO company that I was looking at. I'm like, wow, their ratings are great. They're doing very well. But they, the things that they were doing isn't something that I would do. Um, in fact, as a company, I know definitely we wouldn't be doing because it doesn't, it doesn't match our moral values. They, I mean, they were putting CD links on, on adult sites and, and things like that. They and create profiles um, on adult you know, sites the way and they, just link them to your site. Yeah. And, You're a billion adult you know, sites. Yes, they are. Okay. So, and there's some really busy ones on the internet, let me tell you. But that's not our values, and that's not our thing. And eventually, you know, stuff like that's gonna is gonna push them back out anyway. Because what does SEO like? What is your what does your brand have to do with an adult site when you're not an adult site? And eventually, Google will catch on. Like, hey, these yep. don't really correlate. Because otherwise, like I said, you, you could they could be number one, you know, but they may not be the right you know values that you want. Like if you're if you're like a a church looking for a website and you're going to these guys to get, you know, ranks, that might be a problem in the future. I'm just saying someone's going to see and find out. And then all of a sudden you, your church loses its reputation right. because of it. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's episode of crowdfunding nerds for more resources, articles, and to listen to past podcasts, please visit us at crowdfundingnerds.com. And if you have a crowdfunding question, we also have a page on our site where you can send a message directly to us. 
please visit crowdfundingnerds.com forward slash question. And if your question is a great question, we may include it in a future podcast. Thank you all again for listening to this week's episode, and we'll see you next week. Stay nerdy.